Welcome to Life After Business, the podcast, where I bring you all the information you need to exit your company and explore what life can be like on the other side. This is Ryan Tansom, your host, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome back to the Life After Business podcast. Ryan Tansom here. Today's guest name is Paul Spiegelman. Paul and I had an absolute ton of fun chatting around all of his experience from growing his original company, Barrel Health, to 400 employees and then in 2012 selling it to a public company, Stericycle, where his current title is Chief Culture Officer. Paul is an author, speaker, CEO of Small Giants Community that he founded with one of my favorite authors, Bo Burlingham, that surrounds the entire topic of Bo's book, Small Giants. And his mission for most of his entrepreneurship career is around culture and building a sustainable business that is based in this culture. He's got three recipes and three different factors that we dive into on how you can actually systematize and put process behind this culture so you can measure it. Because I think the biggest challenge that we have as business owners is how do you measure culture and how do you make sure that it is something that you're it's worth investing into and how do you make sure that you can pass it on to the next leadership team or the future potential buyer of your business. So we get into how he measured it, some of the practical ways that you can actually implement this, and then all the different challenges that it comes with transitioning out of a business that you have built, that it is a reflection of you and who you are. This episode of Life After Business is sponsored by The Valley Advantage. The Valley Advantage is a platform delivered via peer groups and or one-on-one to help you build a valuable company that can thrive without you while putting an exit plan in place so you have the options to sell when you want to who you want for how much you want. You're able to manage the business by the numbers, work in the business as much or as little as you want, and you fully understand how the business impacts your personal financials. If you want to know more, check out the show notes or the website. I hope you enjoy this episode with Paul. He's got tons of gold nuggets sprinkled throughout the entire episode. So without further ado, here's Paul. Good morning, Paul. How are you doing? Hi, Ryan. Good to be with you. I'm super, super excited for today's show because you and I have got a very fantastic individual that has uh, been the connection here, and that's Mr. Bo Burlingham. And as our listeners know, he's a solid reason of why I'm on this uh, show and why we're doing this. And for our listeners' sake, can you go back and describe the time that you started your business and then how you ended up into the small giants community. So I know it's kind of two questions, but kind of give us a little bit of a background on both. Sure. Well, the the business goes way back to the mid eighties. I, uh, like you was in a family business. I started my business with my two brothers. We were originally in the medical alert business, kind of like those commercials you see, but we, uh, we'd never sold to the public. Uh, we had a little unit that we would put in people's homes, help them in medical emergencies, and we had an 8 by 10 room where we responded to people. And uh, so we had to staff it 24-7, and we rolled in a cot, and one of us slept overnight, you know, the typical bootstrapped approach. <laughs> and uh, uh, after probably a year or so, uh, we found that we were in another business, and uh, only just by listening to a customer who noticed that we were there 24-7, and uh, she was part of this hospital and said, hey, we have this service we'd like you to consider taking for us. We call it a physician referral service where people are calling from the community looking for doctors. We said, sounds easy enough, and trying to listen to the customer. A couple weeks later, set up a phone line for this hospital and and ended up uh, being our core business, which was essentially an outsourced provider of call center services for hospitals across the country. So wherever you are in the country, if you're calling your local hospital, you're looking for a doctor, or you might respond to a hospital marketing campaign, that could have been uh, my company that was taking those calls, uh, tracking those uh, patients into a hospital system, and doing the same kind of work a hospital would do, but doing it on an outsourced basis. So uh, we were essentially in the call center business, uh, one that certainly didn't have a reputation for uh, happy places to work or high margins. As a matter of fact, you think of kind of the boiler room operation. Mm-hmm. Um, and my brothers and I did make an early decision that we didn't run want to run a business like that. We didn't want to be a commodity business that competed based on cost. We wanted to create value for our customers and 
and uh, and ultimately the kind of culture we created internally and this philosophy around employee engagement really drove uh, our customer loyalty, uh, drove our, our profitability, and ultimately uh, helped create value when um, we exited the business in 2012. I was the only one still involved in the business um, at that point. Uh, we had started in the Los Angeles area, ultimately moved the business to, to Texas when we were hired by a large healthcare company to build a, a national center for them. Uh, and uh, grew very organically, never had any outside capital in the business. Uh, in the early days, we tried to raise uh, a million two uh, in $15,000 increments, and we managed to raise 15000 <laughs> So uh, uh, you know how that goes. You know, when you, when you really need it, no one's going to give it to you. And then when you have some success, they're throwing it at you, and you, know, you don't, don't really want it anymore. So... Uh, so we managed to stick it out that way and, and, and never had any outside capital in the business until ultimately we sold. And I honestly think that had a, a, was a, a good reason why we were able to have the freedom to develop the kind of company that we wanted to develop. And, and, uh, uh, and it really was the brand that we created uh, around our culture and, and how unique that was. And um, so uh, it was back in, I think, 2007 when I had just finished a manuscript for my first book. And I come upon this book called Small Giants by Bo Burlingham, a, a longtime Inc. magazine author. And, and I was just so amazed at how I connected with this message about companies that choose to be great instead of big. And we all want to grow, but we want to grow with purpose and talked about how these companies had leaders who knew who they were and what they wanted out of business and led with values and, and were passionate about multiple stakeholders and the community. Uh, and I just really resonated with that and sent a blind email to Bo one day and said, you don't know me, but I've been inspired by your work and just finished a book on culture. Would you consider writing a forward for my book? He actually said yes and, and wrote a beautiful forward for my book. And, and we became friends. And over the next couple of years, we were talking about this idea that there were many more companies and leaders than the ones he wrote about in his book that would resonate with this message. And when we think about peers that we want to learn from and grow with, uh, this idea that we're values-driven leaders was really something that appealed to me. And I said, look, let's develop a community of these types of leaders where we can learn and grow together. So back in, I think, 2010, Bo and I launched the Small Giants community uh, just for that purpose. And, uh, and that's, uh, we've been, we've been kind of going at it ever since. I, I think it's fantastic, and uh, for the listeners that have not read the Small Giants book, I mean, like you said, it is—it's a fantastic book, and I—I I think it's interesting how I mean, you—you you worded it perfectly because I mean, as entrepreneurs, I think we're very, very addicted to growth for growth's sake, and actually understanding why you're in business and how you affect all the people around you is very, very intriguing. And so to, I want to go a couple of different directions and I, I'm trying to think of which one because you, you exited your business in 2012, but you know, one of the things that you've done really well with your, with your uh, past business and your current business and the, what your message is in all your books is about culture and how the people are a reflection of you. And that's, and, and I'm just curious, like, what are some of the biggest, you know, define culture, I guess, to start out uh, for our listeners? Well, everybody's got a different view of culture. And, and, I, and to me, culture is really two things. One is the extent to which uh, team members or employees will really do discretionary work beyond the basics that's expected of them. And two, it's really just the vibe that you feel when you walk through the, the doors of that business. And uh, uh, and everything related to that. And so to me, culture and leadership are really the same thing. And as leaders, we have to make choices about how we lead. Uh, as you know, the world is kind of changing over the last 10 years or so, more from a command and control style that um, many of us grew up in and got used to and actually worked to now uh, a much more collaborative style of leadership that's more team focused, that uh, allows us to be vulnerable, allows us to actually care about our employees, and mostly to make it strategic so that we realize that there's uh, that culture and treating people well and treating them with respect is not simply the right thing to do. 
it's good for business. There's an ROI to it, and uh, and and it's as important a process in our business as any other process that we have. And when when uh, when we talk about culture and the way that we ran our business, many people will ask me, "Well, when did you decide to run the business this way?" And the answer is, uh, we never decided. Uh, I think our our parents just brought up their three sons with good values and. My dad told me always be nice, never burn a bridge, and uh, treat people with respect. And uh, realized after not too long that not every company works that way. And people would tell us in the early days when we had ten or fifteen employees that uh, that this was a really fun place to work. And we said, well, what makes it fun? And they said, well, you you guys seem to genuinely care about us. We socialize together. We do things. Um, we said, well, well, where'd you used to work? And we said, then they said, well, man. Um, how much time do you have? You know, they wanted to tell us all these terrible stories or about how they were treated. So we did f- realize that there might be something there. And ultimately, we 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 came to the conclusion that, it, you know, there's nothing sexy about being in the call center business. Uh, but if we can create uh, a brand around our culture, that could not only drive employee loyalty, but that might drive customer loyalty and ultimately profit into our business that would allow us to sustain and grow. Yeah, I think you did a very good job at articulating the definition of culture, but I want to I want to ask you maybe a little bit more difficult question. So when you walked in the office in the morning and you said it's the vibe you get when you walk in the office, describe that feeling for me. You know, the, the uh when when uh uh People ask that. I, I really almost de- defer to the the employees that are in the business themselves. And the best example, and this is really where the title of my first book came from, which was "Why Is Everyone Smiling?" Because we would constantly have tours of our office uh, and and our facility, where people would come in, they'd walk in the door, they'd go on a tour, and an hour later they would come back and talk to me and and say, "Gosh, uh, everyone just seems so happy." Uh, there, everyone is smiling, and and uh, so it, the, it wasn't anything purposeful. It was just something that that people said you could feel as soon as you walked in the door, and I think that that's true if you think about it. With most businesses that we visit, is that you can tell uh, how people feel just by looking around and 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 noticing the vibe of the organization, or talking to people, or getting a sense if it's manufactured or genuine mm-hmm. and uh, so it was uh, um, it was something that that I realized that we're we're in a in a in a challenging business we have single moms making you know less than thirty thousand dollars a year taking 80 calls a day from people worried about their health care it's it's a really tough job the least we could do is create an environment in which they feel cared for it's a fun workplace um, we 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 uh, enjoy each other at work. We show that we care about people in the totality of their lives. We reward and recognize. We train and develop. We simply show that it's okay to be yourself um, and kind of let your hair down. And when people realize that ultimately the reason our business exists is to enhance the lives of the people that work there, that's a pretty powerful message for your employees. Yeah, I mean, I think it's and it's very. I love the title of your book too. That patience comes second. Is that's that's a, right? It was patience yeah. comes second. Yeah, because yeah. I mean, everybody immediately thinks the patients come first. But like you said, I mean, your employees are the ones that engage with the patients. I mean, it's and whether they're patients or customers or whoever it is. I mean, it it is a trickle down effect, and. You know, just for you personally, like when you'd walk in the office, because I'm just going going back off my own personal experience. I mean, did you feel kind of like a, a sense of a, like almost like a high or a, like a, a something to be – I mean, because you got to be super proud of what you've created because, I mean, what that kind of culture when you're dealing with people is extremely difficult to create. You know, it, it is uh, difficult to create, but and, and it all starts at the top. So uh, like you said earlier, I think all organizations are a reflection of their leader. And I took that as a really awesome responsibility. And, and when we started our business, there were really three chiefs in the kitchen. So it was really my... Uh, uh, my two brothers and I, and there wasn't one person who was leading. And and back in 2000, our older brother, Mark, uh, left the business. 
And uh, it turned out to be the best thing that ever happened. And and I raised my hand and said, okay, you know, I'd love to take the lead. And our younger brother, Barry, didn't have any interest in being the leader. So I learned on the job what it was like to become a CEO and, and continue to this day to to learn to try to be a, a great leader. But I, to your question, I, I remember so many days where I would just walk in and we had a, uh, if you could picture uh, what was a Walmart facility completely gutted and a 400 seat center with low walls so I could just stand and look around and see the whole place mm -hmm. operating all at one time. And there's a buzz going in the air with just people doing their thing and, and helping helping other people. Our, our, our purpose uh, that we articulated was connecting people to healthcare. And, and so we were just felt like we were making the world a better place. So to walk in every day and hear that buzz uh, was a source of uh, great pride to me. And the other time that I really felt that was, uh, I recall, was our, our annual holiday party. And again, with the kind of people that worked uh, with us, um, that that was a big deal where, the, like the one night where they could really uh, uh, have a great time and we'd, we'd do it lavishly in a nice hotel and casino night and a band and food and everything. And just walking in and, and looking around and going, wow, look at all these families that, that we support and these people whose lives were, I hope, uh, improving for whatever time that they're spending with the company was uh, just a tremendous source of pride for me. So I, I, I couldn't agree more. And, I, and I, we had similar holiday parties and stuff like that. And so I'm, I'm curious because that, you know, part of the, the struggle that I've had in my journey is how did you find that? Like, what was the, what was it like after you sold the business? Can you walk us through that little, what was the triggering event and the transition? Because here you are as the, the CEO and the, 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 person's responsible for the culture and everything's a reflection of you. How did that change after you decided to, to exit the company? That's a great question. And I, uh, I had a couple of experiences that, that led up to that. And, uh, like many, and maybe even you and your dad were thinking, you know, I, I didn't have original intentions to sell the business. I, I all I wanted to do is build a great business, uh, and have it sustained for as long as possible. But just like Bo, uh, Burlingham talks about in his book, Finish Big, uh, every business will transition. Every leader will transition at some point. And my kids were young. I didn't think it was the kind of business that my kids were going to run. So uh, we were in this fast growth area of healthcare. So I knew that at some point there would be a liquidity event. I didn't know when that would happen. And back in 2009, uh, our leadership team was really chomping at the bit to grow at a, at a faster pace. So I decided to seek outside capital for the first time. And uh, I hired an investment banker. I put the book together. We went out uh, at a time, if you remember back in 2009, the market was pretty dead. Um, but I knew we had a great story and we got a lot of interest. We had 20 bids on the company and I actually signed a letter of intent to sell uh, the company to a private equity firm out of Chicago. I signed it in January of 2010. Well, then due diligence started. And during due diligence, uh, the kind of questions that they were asking made me a little bit uneasy. Uh, things like, well, how's March going to look financially? And I said, well, I don't know. I don't look at the financials in the middle of the month. And uh, I, are, I started to get a sense of this short-term focus that they had and how that might impact the business. And as you said, if there's anything I, I would uh, uh, want to protect would be my legacy of having created a culture and the ability for that culture to sustain after uh, I sold the business or after I left the business. So uh, with two weeks to go, I walked away from that deal um, for more money than I could spend. And um, and that I know delivered a, a strong message to our team members that I was there to protect them. And they knew the whole time I was going through that journey. Uh, but I think it gave me some extra brownie points that I didn't even expect that, that I, I really did have them uh, at heart. Uh, and it was about a year later when I was approached by uh, a public company in healthcare called Stericycle, which was a company I'd never heard of, was not in our space at all, but approached us to become a uh, part of their family. And uh, uh, it took a long time. It actually took a year to, to do that deal. And about six months into just having those conversations, I met the CEO of Stericycle. He actually didn't 
wasn't the CEO yet. He had become he had been nominated. He'd been there 20 years, but he was the incoming CEO. And I met him the first time, and he and he said uh, pulled me aside. He said, "Paul, uh, his name is Charlie." He said, "Paul, I I want to tell you I've heard so much about." you and your company and what you've created from a culture standpoint. And he said, I'll be real honest with you. Uh, our company has had a great financial run. We are very customer focused, but we've never really looked at the employee as a key stakeholder in our business. And he said, as the incoming CEO, I want that to be my my stamp. Uh, he said, could I come visit you in Texas and just see how you do this? Uh, and uh, I said, of course, I'd, I'd be honored. And he flew down, he spent a couple days, and I right away knew this guy gets it. Oh, cool. And 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 that was the turning point for me. And, and uh, so, you know, six months later, we actually decided to become part of the, uh, the Stericycle family. And uh, I did realize that uh, pretty quickly, that running my company, Barrel Health, as part of a larger public company was not going to be as interesting to me. One, as I had been doing it for almost 30 years. Two, is that uh, as entrepreneurs know, uh, we like it when it's our show and we, <laughs> you know, we we make all the decisions. And when you sell it, uh, it's not your show anymore. And I didn't have any ego about that. And and uh, and so, uh, sitting down with Charlie a couple months after the sale, he said, Paul. Uh, what do you really want to do? And I said, Charlie, I'd like to be chief culture officer of Stericycle. I, I said, that's where my passion is. Uh, I'd love the opportunity to determine whether what works for small works for big, whether uh, you can scale a culture in a, in, uh, or change a culture in a company that had been around for 25 years. And ultimately, I was very curious to determine whether leaders, these command and control leaders in the corporate world, we're willing to change the way they lead. And I said, if you'll give me this opportunity, I, I, I will do it and I don't even want to be paid. Uh, and so he said, let's start Monday. And that was you know, almost five years ago. And I was able to uh, do this work on a, on a much bigger stage that I had no experience in. So he had a lot of uh, trust in me. And the company has 25,000 employees in 18 countries, does 40 to 50 acquisitions a year. So talk about a culture challenge. It's a, it's a whole different world. So uh, it's been a great experience for me. But the, the transition, uh, I feel like I was the luckiest person in the world because uh, I was able to continue to do the work, uh, the part of the work that I love the most. And uh, it, it didn't include running my, my actual business. Well, I mean, I got goosebumps when you said that Charlie gets it because, I mean, you can't, I mean, you must have felt so blessed because that, I mean, building a, you know, a business that's based on the culture and your family and your friends and everybody that's around you to actually have someone that's going to be buying you that's not, like you said, the, the PE firm that's looking two weeks out to Marsh's financials. Yeah. Someone that actually says, hey, you know what? I get it. And that you must have just felt like the luckiest man in the in the world. Oh, I did. And, uh, and it, it, what we said earlier about uh, the organization being a reflection of the leader was true. And now I got to essentially help coach this, this CEO uh, in, in, in his own journey to make the culture uh, a key strategic initiative of Stericycle. And I remember after three years of being CEO, someone at one of our town halls asked Charlie, said, you know, what's the, the thing you're most proud of after three years as being CEO? And he said it was the culture. Uh, and I think that that's something that really makes me feel good. But it, it it starts there. If you don't have a leader that doesn't just get it uh, or or check the box, but is genuine about it, um, participates, walks the walk, uh, it's just simply not going to work, in my opinion. So uh, the stars aligned. I, like you said, was blessed to have this opportunity uh, to work with um, some great people and and try to take some of what. I had learned in all these years and see if it uh, is something that could scale. So yeah, I got some questions for you because, you know, as our listeners are in the, the, you know, various points of transition, whether they're just thinking long term or they're like, you know, trying to figure out the, the, the next culture, the next leader, whoever it might be, you know, what are some of the like the the practical ways? Because I mean, for you guys to do forty to sixty, forty to fifty acquisitions or sixty, whatever you said. I mean, you're integrating. Okay, you know, there's the accounting systems, the IT systems, and all that other you know typical practical stuff. But when you're integrating culture, so you've you've built your own culture, then you're helping with a lot of these integrations. 
can we maybe spin that around and as you like so like the challenge that I had I was describing to you where you build this great culture and if you don't hand it off to someone that gets it like Charlie uh Char- Charlie like mm-hmm. how do you how do you manage that emotionally like you said you had no ego when you were going into it because you had some other things going on but how can you simultaneously build a great culture that is the next level management that is you know you're passing it on and then transition into another potential buyer or another potential you know regime as the executive team like what are some practical things that you see that's been working well to me the uh, the way culture is sustained in any business is to institutional what i call institutionalize the culture and develop these processes so that they survive uh you or any particular leader in the organization. Because once you have, uh, whether it's me running my smaller company or Charlie running a big company, uh, it takes so much support from all levels of the business, uh, whether it's senior leaders, middle management, frontline. Um, as an example, at Stericycle, um, we have a small culture team, corporate culture team, but we have over 500 culture ambassadors in the field that are all full-time workers that have different jobs but have raised their hand to be the local champion in their market or location (coughs) excuse me to help support these culture efforts and culture initiatives and we have you know i know the numbers get big but we have almost three thousand middle managers frontline uh, supervisors that uh, look at this culture stuff and think about, well, wait a minute, you're just giving me something more to do in my job. I thought I just have a target to meet uh, or a goal. And and we said, well, wait a minute, we're not adding to your job. This is your job. And like uh, many companies, and I'm sure in yours that you're familiar with, what we tend to do as leaders is we sometimes take those great workers and we give them the title as manager and then we forget to train them on what it means to actually be a a leader (laughs) and blame them instead of looking in the mirror and realizing it's our fault. We haven't given them the tools to be successful. So multiply that to, you know, a, a... multinational public company, that's a big challenge. And and so what we do is we put processes in place to allow that to happen. And that's why I was so uh, thrilled that the number one, if I go back to my, you know, almost 400 employees in my company, that when I made this transition, uh, I knew that if Charlie was going to invest in these culture efforts, then, then the, then the, uh, what we had created and the traditions that we created in my own company would remain and the culture would still would uh, would live on. And to this day, that's that's true. And I'm really proud of that. But then I thought, well, maybe what we've done could rub off on this larger organization. And, uh, you know, that didn't come without challenges, uh, challenges from senior leaders who said, uh, wait a minute, uh, you know, our We've had greater stock return over the last 20 years than Apple and Starbucks. You know, why do we need this? We're doing just fine. Why do we need to change? And who are you coming from a smaller company? Mm-hmm. So uh, it, it was tough going there to to create trust and to get people to realize that there is a reason to do this. Uh, but ultimately, it's it's a it's kind of like creating a recipe book. And to me, I think there's uh, from a practical standpoint three things that every employee wants in any company, large or small. One is purpose. They want to feel like that there's a, a reason that they're here beyond the job and they need to understand how their work connects to that. Two is they want to be appreciated. They want to be valued for they for what they do. Third is they, they want the opportunity to learn and grow, or I use the acronym PAL, P-A-L. Um, so if we focus our energy as leaders in those three areas, and come up with programs or processes and then hold our leaders, middle managers accountable for executing on that, then we can create really sustainable, consistent culture. And that's where we are at Stericycle right now as a large company. We have implemented some wonderful programs over the last five years. But can I honestly say that wherever you are in the company, wherever you work, you're going to have the same level of treatment uh, not yet. We're not. We're not there yet. It takes years to be able to uh, to do it. And I think that the the if I had to pick one thing that resonates as the key above all, it's it's the idea of core values. 
and how those core values are not just established and created and communicated, but lived on a daily basis within the four walls of the company. Um, so, yeah, I, 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 core values. Are you familiar with uh, traction at all? Yes. Yeah. So um, traction is like Minneapolis and Minnesota has been, it's like a hotbed for traction consultants. And I think there's this, I think everybody gets it and they, you know, they, they read the book and they, they, they love the whole concepts. And, but um, I think you, you hit the nail on the head when you said when you're actually living it, right? Cause I think you can just slap all these core values up, but if you, if you're not actually doing them, it's just, you know, it's just another blank mission statement that's thrown against the wall that no one really resonates with. And, you know, my question on this topic is, you know, what are some of the actual processes or things that you've put into place to get the purpose appreciation and the, the ability to learn and grow? So, I mean, I get all this stuff, but like, what are like the repeatable things? How, I, I guess the question is, how do you measure it? You know, what are the processes and then how did you measure whether it was successful or not? Yeah. Uh, well, first, from uh, the standpoint of uh, the processes themselves, when it comes to, for example, core values, you know, we integrate those core values into uh all other processes, whether it's our hiring process, it's our performance management process. So, you know, in, in our company, the, you know, 20% of people's uh, bonus was based on adherence to core values. Every meeting was start by reciting core values and telling stories about how people lived up to them. Our reward and recognition programs were based on uh, living the core values Ultimately, to me, the the where I saw that core values were ingrained in the business was when is when I saw how they were impacting decision making. As an example, at my company Barrel Health, we might have a, a employee situation where the employee manual said, "Hey, this is how we're supposed to deal with this situation," but someone raises their hand in a management meeting and says, "But wait a minute." What's the right thing to do here? And and our core value is always do the right thing. And they were willing to go beyond what was in the book to say core values come first. Or a client would ask us to take on a project that was really unusual and might bring a lot of revenue to the, the business. But someone would raise their hand and said, but wait a minute, one of our values is never sacrifice quality. Uh, should we be taking that business? And so they became literal guideposts for how we made decisions every day. And I was one of those cynics who always looked at these as a plaque on the wall somewhere. And I go, aha, these are really something and something special. So it's having them in every touch point of the experience of the employee that I think is really critical. Uh, appreciation and is the and uh, feeling valued is is everything from honoring our one-to-one -one meetings with our direct reports uh, and making sure that we're listening to what is going on with people, to, to uh, knowing people in their personal lives and putting things in place uh, and institutionalizing that. As an example, we had a program at, at Barrel called Barrel Cares, uh, and we would have managers who would notify us that there was a life event, a birth, a death, uh, someone graduated from college, some somebody's son ran a marathon, and they could submit it online that would be a trigger for me to act. And I would know now everything that was going on with people, which meant I could write a personal note card or, or uh, go to a funeral or place a phone call on a Sunday night, whatever needed to be done. But we, we set it up to make sure that it there was a process in place to do that. Uh, and then uh, with, with things like uh, learning and development, in small companies, it's hard. We didn't have Barrel University, but we committed ourselves to being a learning organization. And whether it was things like book clubs or our own in-house management training programs, we showed a commitment uh, to developing people's careers. And we didn't care whether that career ended with barrel or not and said, look, if you know we prepare you to go off somewhere else, we're going to feel really proud about that. So I think these are programs that grow over time. And as you said, it's critical to measure the impact uh, for uh, your your own purposes to determine whether you, where you're placing your efforts or in the case of a public company like Stericycle, I had to sit in front of a board uh, who were sometimes cynical to say, you know, why are we wasting our time on this stuff? Um, and uh, so we measured everything we could from uh, the cost of employee attrition to the impact on customer loyalty to the impact on financials. And uh, at Barrel Health, I, I 
we were able to uh, do a few things that I think resulted um, from the, the culture efforts. One is that we were able to be a premium provider in a commodity world. We charged 30 to 40% more than our next closest competitor. And we were able to do that because people valued the culture that we had. Uh, it certainly showed up in um, the... Uh, valuation we ultimately got on our business was uh, well in excess of what you would see in the marketplace because they valued the culture. Um, at Stericycle, we measured, uh, when I got there, the cost of employee turnover. Uh, I worked with the CFO, and, and believe it or not, it was costing the company between 25 and $40 million a year. And in, in one year, we were able to reduce that by 5%, not just due to the culture efforts, but uh, through a lot of folks involved. And so you could see the direct impact to the bottom line. We saw that we measured the profitability by location, and 50% of our locations also happened to be the highest rated in employee engagement. So it seems you know intuitive that, well, happy people create better profits, but until you really measure it in those ways, you're, it's going to be hard to convince the naysayer. So I'm, I'm very focused on always measuring the results of, of what we do. Well, I think it's, I think it's fantastic because, you know, as entrepreneurs, every business owner knows that they need to measure their profitability and their growth and all that stuff. And I, I think at the, the, the true core, every entrepreneur knows this stuff. I mean, you, you, you get the first couple employees because they believe in you, right? And so to be able to replicate that and scale that, like you said, you have to be able to quantify it. And I love in uh, Tony Shea's book, Delivering Happiness from Zappos, that you know the, the board as he was going public or as Amazon was buying, <laughs> they said that this is Tony Shea's like, psychology project because I don't think he was doing the stuff that you're doing to actually show that it actually drops right to the bottom line. Yeah, I think uh, I think it's it's really important. It's uh, and and I think it's for me. I've I've been committed to measurement for another reason is that I want to convince other business leaders uh, to do business this way. And while I'm really proud of what we've done, and 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 you can talk to a number of leaders that are doing wonderful things to uh, grow great businesses and cultures and and measure them. I think we're still in the minority in terms of. Uh, methods of leadership. And we got a ways to go here. So any chance we get to convince others, I think sometimes people need validation. And uh, once we get people who go, you know, I get this, I just don't know exactly how to do it. So kind of back to your question, Ryan, about, all right, practically speaking, how do you do it? That's the fun part is, mm -hmm. is to say, you know, I get it, but I'll be honest, I don't, I'm not used to leading this way. And, and I've had the opportunity at Stericycle to uh, meet some of these command and control leaders who had great success in their careers, but uh, took a lot of prisoners along the way and became known <laughs> as jerks in, in the workplace. And I thought they were jerks, honestly, I until, I, <laughs> until I got to know them and I learned something really interesting. I said, you know what? They're not jerks. They all have big hearts. They all sensitive. They just don't know any different. I mean, what they did was based on their experience and it worked for them. But the world's changing and so I, I really like to, to work with people like that to say, with this, a few simple adjustments in your own style, you could not only achieve and exceed these targets that you've been so good at achieving, you're gonna get this warm and fuzzy feeling that you've never had before about what it means to impact people's lives. And that's something that we, we're just gonna do one liter at a time. Well, and I think it's really cool because I think it's extremely applicable to like, so I've got some clients and I've also talked to a lot of uh, entrepreneurs and the peer groups and stuff that I'm in. And, and I think there's this, there's this major, um, I don't even know how to articulate like gap or void where, so there's lots of these baby boomers who have grown very successful businesses. They've, you know, been the PR figure. They've been the leadership and, you know, these millennials are coming in, they're trying to figure out. So if, if this business, whether they sell it to a you know public company or a PE firm and completely cut ties is one thing, but then there's all these internal transitions, but there's this gap in leadership and culture to actually transition from 
them being the head figure to a new culture that is sustainable so that way it can still provide the the business owner with the you know the emotional needs that it's providing for the for the time being and the financial needs and just kind of curious if you know as you're doing these acquisitions what have you you know you have any thoughts or ideas on how they can look for the leaders or like do you hire a leader and let that individual create the new culture or do you create the new culture before you hire the, the leadership what are some of the things you've seen well it's it's been a really interesting journey to see because now i've i, I see lots of other entrepreneurs who have sold their companies to to stericycle and i've been now on the, on the other side of the aisle kind of watching that and and i gotta say it's it's uh it, it is a challenge I, I mean i think entrepreneurs need to be really uh very careful about when they sell their company and understanding what that means and whether you're selling the whole company or even selling a, a part of your company you are selling uh, your your ability to control the future and you have to understand that going in uh, and then uh, I think a lot of it is just what's what's really important to you um, and if you know if if you're looking to just sell kind of cash out go do the next thing then you know all power to you it won't matter that wasn't enough for me obviously protecting what we had built to the extent that I could do that um, was number one. And, I, and I'm very fortunate that that has worked out for me that way. But I, I saw a lot of people in these last five years where it didn't really work out that way. Um, and and I, I think that the entrepreneurs probably didn't spend enough time thinking about that in advance and planning uh, for it in advance and understanding what their role would be. And again, I think uh, if I had been um, asked to or um, to continue to run my business as part of the larger business, I'd have been long gone myself. It just it just wouldn't wouldn't have worked. So the stars just kind of aligned uh, for me when we acquire all these other businesses. Uh, I think there's a balance between trying to um, respect the culture of their business but also integrate them into these processes and the institutions that we have built as part of Stericycle. And sometimes we're welcomed with open arms, like, wow, this is great. And other times the, the uh, smaller company uh, will feel very defensive about what they have, um, and, or protective is probably a better word, mm -hmm. uh, for good reason. And, and we need to honor those things and actually learn from them uh, things that we can, we can bring to the business. But it's... Uh, it's a fascinating sort of psychological um, phenomenon that I've just never seen before because people get so emotional uh, during this process. And, and I'm one of the rare owners that honestly sticks around. Mm -hmm. um, so, well, a, I mean, yeah. kick-ass title. I mean, come on, how fun is yeah. how fun is your job? It's yeah, be yeah, so fun. Yeah, pretty pretty good gig. So. Um, uh, but I think that the as I look back at um, the things I did well or didn't do well leading up to exiting my company is I did have um, mentors along the way who really helped me focus because even though I didn't have any outside capital and no one I was really answering to, uh, I tried to run the business as if I did. I always tried to, to see, well, what were those things that would create value in the business. And I, <clears throat> not only the private equity deal, but I had uh, one other time back in, I think, 2003 when a competitor tried to buy us. And I would welcome conversations with people that were interested in it, not because I wanted to s sell to them, but because I wanted to see how they viewed our company. And that's how I got a sense of valuation along the way. And uh, and I also got a sense of the gaps that people saw in the business, and I knew what to work on. I knew that that creating a, a powerful leadership team was critical to valuation. Um, I learned about not having concentration in our customer base or having kind of a, a strategic vision around our product growth. Uh, all, all these things just came from people who uh, looked at the business from the outside so I tried to do that to create value. And I also tried to do a lot of thinking in advance about what's next. And I was fortunate that I had started two other companies, the Barrel Institute, kind of a thought leadership entity in healthcare, 
and the small giants community. And I had done some speaking and writing. So uh, I knew that I wasn't just going to go uh, lie on the beach or do nothing, which wouldn't work well for me at all. And uh, so I think something that, that as I read Bo's book uh, resonated so much with me was the, the realization that, again, all of us are going to transition at some point, and we owe it to ourselves and our employees to be really carving out time to thinking about those kinds of things now and having discussions with people who have been through it before so they can give us some guidance. And when you were talking, you know, so that you're talking about the different uh, value drivers, and um, I'm very, uh, I pushed the the value builder system with John Warlow into all of my my ways because it's really just being, it's a great way to consciously understand what, like like you said, that the buyer's looking at. But, you know, one thing that you mentioned that's, I think, kind of in there, and there's a lot of different value building methodologies that are out there, but you said that you were able to get, you know, or you've seen higher valuations because of the culture. When you're doing a valuation like that, how do you quantify that part of it? Well, I don't, I don't have any method to the madness there. Uh, I just knew that, um, it was all in the story that we told mm -hmm. and, uh, and being disciplined around, um, well, one is showing how it's impacted the business and how we were able to grow the business and add to our, you know, EBITDA every year, year over year. But, um, uh, even the fact that when we did the private equity deal, we didn't have much of a sales force, uh, and didn't hand. So they tried to discount us because we didn't have a lot of visibility to future sales, even though we had really grown the company in a big way. Um, so, uh, I, I didn't have a formula to say, well, it's because of our culture. I think we just knew that what we had created was special, mm -hmm. that, that it was the culture story that we were telling as the reason why we were special. Um, and, uh, and I kind of, you know, for lack of a better word, stood my ground to knowing that we had something unique and special. And if there was going to be a time when we were going to um, exit the business, that um, it was going to, uh, that was going to impact our, our valuation. And I guess the luckiest news of all is I didn't have to sell. And so I was in a position of, of leverage at the time to, um, to make those choices. Yeah. yeah. So um, one last question for you. So if you're, you know, because I, I I see it a lot where so there there's this need to build this next level management team like you said you that you had created. Um, what order of operations would you do? Would you build your core values and your vision of the culture that you want to create before you start bringing on this next level management team, or would you start finding those people then work on it together? I think there's this kind of chicken or the egg when you're looking at that situation. Well, it all depends on where what stage you are in your company and uh, the establishment of vision values, I think uh, needs to happen as soon as possible. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, in the early days, of course, we're just trying to survive. Um, uh, so, uh, and, and it's going to change over time for sure. What I would say in terms of the exercise of visioning and values is that should be an inclusive exercise, not one that, that you as the leader just say, this is what it is. And I hope you guys are on board. The more you can include people in that process, uh, the better, because you're going to get great input. They're going to feel bought in they're going to help you execute. So every time I've done it in my company or as I did it at Stericycle, uh, reestablishing them or refreshing them, it's always been with a, a large group of people who feel bought, bought into that process. I think um, the idea of building the management team was something that uh, I benefited in a great uh, respect for a couple of reasons. One is that um, I stretched to just get great people that uh, had experience in doing before what we needed for them to do. And, and from a comp standpoint or whatever I could do to be creative, I, I wanted to bring in those those kind of leaders. Second, I was um, humble enough to know that uh, from a functional perspective, uh, my talent only goes so far. And, and if I'm going to really grow this company, I'm going to need people that can um, help me do that. And, um, and you know, over the years got out of the functional running of the business mm -hmm. uh, and the heavy lifting to the point where um, the business really could run without me. Um, but it started with absolutely um, 
realizing that uh, while we all love control and we love to kind of do things ourselves, that when you uh, bring in trusted uh, people onto your team, uh, it's a great a great feeling. And I always, that was, in, in my opinion, my biggest job was putting the right people in the right seats at the right time and realizing that there's never a time when you're done. You're all, as one of my mentors always said, you're always weeding the garden and uh, uh, stretching because otherwise the business outgrows the talent we have. Mm-hmm. Um, we've talked about a lot. I know we could probably keep going for a long time, um, but if there was one thing out of all the things that we've chatted about that you would highlight for our listeners, what do you think it would be? Well, I think that uh, it would probably be, Ryan, just to be deliberate about uh, your thoughts uh, and dreams as a leader, uh, looking longer term, taking the time to carve out uh, where you want to be in life, what your future vision is, not the one for the company itself, but you as a, as a, a leader or an owner or an entrepreneur, uh, realizing that uh, you want to put yourself in the best position possible to achieve that, to think about the fact that you know a trans- transition may happen at some point to surround yourselves with uh, mentors who can help you get there. And I hope to uh, appreciate the fact that building a, a great uh, culture um, is, is great for business, is the right thing to do. And to me as leaders, the, the best feeling we get is the, the impact we have on people's lives. And uh, so if we question ourselves to make sure that we're spending our time correctly, um, that's always a good uh, self-conversation to have. I love it. I love it. Um, Paul, what's the best way for our listeners to get in touch with you? Uh, best way is just to go to my website, paulspiegelman.com, and uh, happy to help or hear from anyone on, on any of these topics. And then I'll also put a little note in there that people should go to the Small Giants community and subscribe to the newsletter. And then you also have your own podcast that's come out recently that I think you're going to end up coming across some very awesome conversations. So um, it's all of the information that you've kind of been uh, dripping to us today. So again, Paul, thank you so much for coming on the show. My pleasure. Thanks for having me.